welcome to our podcast. This is Tea Time with the Psychos. Our vision for this podcast is to highlight mental health issues and topics while also having a bit of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm Caitlin Keneally. I'm a psychotherapist and soon-to-be author. Uh, More details to follow throughout the season on that venture. And I'm Elizabeth Nelson, a mental health advocate and soon-to-be therapist in training. Yes. Uh, To receive our monthly newsletter, head over to our website, Tea Time with the Psychos, um, and enter your email, actually. Uh, This will help you stay updated with all our new and exciting things. Yes. (laughs) And this season, season two, um, theme is about community. Yes. So So thank thank you you for joining us. All right. Well, (laughs) thank you for joining us. It has been a while. Yes. Since we've done a podcast. Yes. It's been a little bit. Yeah. So um, we have a very special guest with us today. um, And we would love for you to introduce yourself, um, Kelly, and tell people a little bit about yourself. And then we're just going to (laughs) jump into the episode. Okay, perfect. This is the hardest part of being like, <laughs> like, like, because my whole thing is teaching therapists how to market themselves. So then when I am on the spot and I have to tell people what I do, I get like all nervous. Um, okay, so my name is Kelly Stevens. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And um, I run an Instagram page called The Private Practice Pro and a company called The Private Practice Pro. And I teach therapists how to build cash pay private practices. So I have an online course that walks people through the exact setup of how to open their own practice and launch it from the ground up. Um, and then I post a ton of free content on Instagram too. Yeah, so, super and then freaking cool. That, I'm a therapist. Yeah, I even said before we started recording that I have such a girl crush, seriously, Uh, yeah, because um, especially, I guess, maybe in our little bubble of Wisconsin or where we live, um, uh, it's not really taught to us to go have your own private practice. I knew, because I'm not very good with institutions, I ask a lot of freaking questions, and I really don't like to reinvent the wheel, and um, I think uh, that that can get you in trouble sometimes, so I always knew I was going to have my own private practice, but then I had to go and search out other people because I'm like what is happening and then that's how I came across your page and you've been truly inspirational so I just want to thank you for that and I seriously think that anybody who has any interest in therapy or the dynamics of it because I don't think people fully understand (laughs) if you don't work in a hospital setting or something like that then what do you do Oh, totally. I mean, and I think here in California, it's the same way. You know, I think we do have a lot of private practices, but I don't know that uh, master's programs or PhD programs do a good job of teaching people how to open them. In fact, I know they don't because I teach in a couple of them, (laughs) which are, they're great programs. Don't get me wrong. But there's no, you know, the way the state licensing works, there's no required course on how to build a private practice do the licensing. So of course the schools are not going to teach it, no fault of their own, you know? Um, so I agree with you. Nobody kind of tells you how to do it and it's confusing. And, and I feel the same way we were saying before on the, um, before we got on live or whatever, uh, or not live <laughs> podcasting, I'm used to <laughs> Instagram before we got on the, the podcast, yeah. um, but I felt the same way when I first started my page, I saw your guys' page and I was like, one day. Maybe. <laughs> I love it. Up. 
Instagram works, you know? It's like a weird world where you can, like, see a lot of things, and but you don't know people. Right. Anyway, well, I think the coolest thing with Instagram and where it's gone, so even publishing my book, everybody that I've found and how I went about it, I did all my research through Instagram, setting up those discovery calls, doing those different types of things, even our podcast stuff. Like, Instagram (laughs) is, like, the the new research modality for entrepreneurs. Yeah. I know. Isn't it so – it's odd because I feel like – you know, there's Facebook, there's TikTok. I'm definitely trying to experiment in TikTok. Not, <laughs> I have like 30 followers total. Um, but yeah, I feel like Instagram, like therapists, for whatever reason, we love it. I mean, there's thousands of thousands of therapists on Instagram, and it's it's so funny. It's like its whole own little therapy culture. Yeah. So. Absolutely. So the first question I kind of wanted to ask you is kind of going back a little bit. So did you feel like you always wanted to be in private practice? And then like, how did you kind of make the transition? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Okay. Did I feel I always wanted to be in private practice? This is a good question. Um, Yes. Okay. So I only knew therapists before I decided to become a therapist, I had obviously been, well, I don't know if it's obvious, but I had been to therapy myself and I only knew that therapists worked in private practice. I guess, I don't know if that makes sense, but like, I didn't know any other therapists who worked in agencies or whatever growing up. And so I just assumed everyone worked in private practice. So then I am not always like the best at doing my research. And so I go to a master's program and I'm like, I'm going to become a therapist in private practice. And all of a sudden, you know, you're working in practicum and agencies and treatment centers. And it was, I had no idea those even existed. So I think a lot of people come in the other way. Um, but I knew that I wanted to be in private practice. And then both of my parents are entrepreneurs, not therapists. Um, they're both like MBA business people. And I think when I told them I wanted to be a therapist, I think they thought I was like, like, they were like, what? Why? You know? Um, and so I kind of was like a feelings kid and an entrepreneurial family. And so I, I don't think it was ever an option kind of not to. And then I was shocked when I got into my master's program and nobody had any conversation around it. And in fact, I felt like people were discouraging yes, of work yes. in private practice, mm-hmm. you know, and, and said like, you know, you need to wait until you're a certain age. And I had gone straight through from undergrad um, or you need more experience or you need more money or you need X amount of money to open a practice or you name it. I mean, I feel like, or you're only going to make this amount of money. And then like, meanwhile, I'm taking out thousands and thousands of dollars of student loans. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I don't know. like I can't afford to make $40,000 a year and pay $1,200 a month in student loan payments. Thank like how? You. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then there's like this belief that you're a bad person if you want to make money. And I'm like, at 40,000 a year with $1,200 a month in student loan payments, I'm like, I'm going to have 600, 800 bucks per month left over to pay rent, food, gas. Like that's impossible. It's literally impossible. Yeah. And, and then you're told you're a bad person if you want something different. And I was like, this is a whole lot of BS, you know? (laughs) So, um, yeah. Did that answer your question? Yeah, no, for sure. I I love every piece of that because I think uh, what we've talked about before, Liz and I and other podcasts, is that as helpers, you know, we're told to, like, lay down on the barbed wire fence and just stay there, right? Like, $40,000 is good enough for you. Actually, 30, you know, or less because we are in this helping field. And to me, that is just, it's just not okay. And until we stop laying down, until we start having these conversations, it's never going to 
shift. And if the pandemic did anything, it was highlight even further the discrepancies that helpers and people that intrinsically want to do this need to advocate for themselves because nobody's coming to do that for us. Yes. Oh, 100%. You know, I mean, I feel like I could stand on my soapbox about this all the time, but literally, so I post obviously a lot on Instagram and anytime I post about therapists deserving to be paid well, and I'm not talking about, I mean, look, I deserve, I think therapists deserve to make really good money, but like, I'm yeah. not even saying like, you need to make a million dollars a year. They deserve to make more than 40,000 a year, right? Absolutely. I get so much hate in my DMs. You would not even believe. I know. I was wondering that because I was reading one of your reels or something. I was like, I'm not even going to click on these comments. There's like maybe 200 here and I could get through all of them, but I don't even want to see what someone's going to post like in response what, oh, to So it. what would be, okay, because I don't, because I'm just fangirling. <laughs> I just watch it and I'm like, yes, love you. Yeah, oh my God. Me, what would Usually be, people send me private messages, but I had one example? yesterday on a reel okay. that I posted about um I didn't I wasn't even posting about money I was posting about how to close a therapy session and instead of saying um when do you want to come back dividing it into two questions and saying do you want to come back and if so when right to give the client more agency and then in the comment I had said or in the caption I had said it's more likely that clients will come back if you say this. Yeah. And someone took that comment to mean that I was implying that they should want to come back. Therefore, I want to make more money. Therefore, and I was like, this is literally like the opposite of this post. And so I've had comments like this person in particular, but tons other like this that are like, you know, uh, they said like, I am deeply disturbed by the fact that therapists are in it for the money or that therapists would, that this post implies that you want to be in it for the money. And it's, and then they said, similar to nurses, I think that therapists should not be in it for the money. And I was thinking to myself like, shit, if, or I don't know if I'm allowed to post yeah, yeah, swear, swear. swear. Yeah. <laughs> we are in season uh, two trying not to, but you go for it. That was based on our mother's like, responses of our, their feedback. Yeah. Okay. okay. But like, the if the pandemic taught us anything it's that nurses should be paid better right yes. like i don't understand by where it's like okay if you're a banker you should deserve to be paid for the money work for money but if you're a therapist no don't think about it you know it's like wait shouldn't we be paying people that whose job it is to try to improve the mental health of the people around us and it incredibly challenging time in our world shouldn't we pay those people well but instead like it's like people there's this shame component where people say like no 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 if you're a therapist you should want to help me for free or you should want to help me like for not that much but my lawyer or my banker I totally understand that they want to work for money right or like them pay for my right. college like they don't they well, nope invest all this money but don't get no yeah so weird it's so weird and like i said every single time i post about it i get all kinds of people interesting therapists and people who are not therapists yeah so. huh 
Um, and, and so with that, I think that that also, so not only that shame and guilt factor that you had just said, but then even us, or at least me, so I'm going to speak for myself, even me who can advocate for myself, who is confident, I still feel shame and guilt for asking for my value or my worth, which I'm not even there yet. You know what I mean? I know what I could be getting. I am still not even there because I am holding myself back and I recognize that. So like, um, do you have those money, like, uh, I don't know, money blocking beliefs, I guess we could call them. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you that as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, so I'm a systems person, right? Like I like to have a system for how to handle things. And so the way I've done this in my mind, so I work in cash pay practice, which means I don't take insurance and that's what I teach people how to do. And so obviously there's a guilt factor to that, right? Like I'm not teaching people how to take insurance and oftentimes people consider insurance to be the way that we can provide most accessibility in our practices but the reality is for a lot of therapists especially if you live in like a high rent city is a lot of times people can't afford to take it there's a lot of reasons why they can't and we could go into that forever but that's not the question you asked so um what I talk to myself about is I have a system. So my system is that when I have a full practice, depending on you know my life and my work and where I'm at in my motherhood journey and all that, when I'm seeing a full practice, I keep four sliding scale spots in my practice. And what that means for me is not like sliding my feet 10 bucks or something. I slide my feet down for people who make minimum wage and I charge them what it would cost them to have one hour of work. So if they or get paid $15 an hour, they pay $15 for that session. Um, rather than, oh, I don't know if it's my thing that keeps doing that. Or, okay. Um, so that's typically the way I handle it. And then I remind myself that in order to have four sessions a week, which is a lot, that are not are basically not paid for me. Because at $15 an hour, I'm not even breaking even on my rent. Right. Um, right. I, in order to do that, I have to charge my full fee in my other sessions. So in order to provide services to people that are not able to afford my services, otherwise I have to charge my full fee. And so as a result of that, I don't feel guilty. And then, you know, the other thing I do is I like to promote open path. I don't know if you guys have had them on your podcast, but you totally should. They're incredible. Um, And they're basically a nonprofit that pairs um, sliding scale clients with therapists who are in private practice. So and then basically it's a matching system. I think they served like 80,000 clients in the US. They have thousands of therapists and they always are needing more support. And so if you're wondering like, how do I find low fee clients or how do I know what the right fit is? They just pair you, mm. which is amazing. Yeah. Um, so that's the other way I do it because I'm not willing to sacrifice my own financial well-being because the system as a whole is broken and doesn't pay therapists enough to survive if you're taking insurance. Well, I think it's because we don't educate on insurance and like actually reading in and looking into your insurance, not just going who's in network, who's out of network, where do I go and I pay a bill? Like read your bill, understand your bill. Like I don't think we talk about that. And I think if we did, people, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now with us as like feeling guilty. Like. Oh, totally. Totally. hundred percent. And like a lot of times people call my office and they'll say, you know, I need to use my insurance and I don't take it. And I just say like totally for free. I say, text me or email me a copy of who's in your panel and I'll tell you who I recommend. You know, I'm not trying to convince people that want to use their insurance, not to to use me or whatever. 
you know, yeah. but yeah, we need to educate people, therapists and clients. We, I had no education in my master's program about how to take insurance, which is shocking considering the fact that it's part of your day-to-day life right. as a therapist. Yeah. You know? Well, I think that goes back to the institutional, right? I'm going to work for so-and-so because they have a whole department who's just going to handle and manage this. And so right. there is no way for us to maybe feel like we should all be growing in private practice, right? And be established right. and people feel like they should join that realm yeah. and get their mental health from that. And I didn't know, right? Because especially in our smaller area, there's not, a, there's like one other private practice here. So I'm like the other one, you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, I do cash and insurance and I'm in right. this position where I'm trying to figure out what is going to be the best route. And I right. will tell you that it is not insurance. I mean, after the chasing of it, the submit, I mean, it is, seriously like I hit a wall I can't even see past it because to me in my perspective if I've done my credentialing I've done what I'm supposed to do I've submitted and now it's on you I shouldn't have to jump through yeah Yeah, I shouldn't have to jump through 800 other hoops that I have no training in whatsoever you know um so that's always my biggest gripe and so I think for me as a clinician right now I'm trying to weigh both of those but I'm definitely leaning towards it's just not going to be insurance-based this entire time because it's just not worth it. I know. It's a really challenging decision, and I tell people that. You know, this is the, the question that comes up on my page the most is, like, you know, and I often will say to people, if there comes a day when insurance companies are paying well and covering mental health services in the way that they should be for their clients, yeah. then obviously I'm going to take it. Right. You know, I'm not, like, anti-insurance. But at the point – and. And then also I would say, because we're going to get tons of comments on this in the show notes, is there are some insurance companies that do good work. You know, like I know here in California, there's a company called Lyra, L-Y-R-A, that provides really good reimbursement and that people have worked well with. And I've had client or therapist clients who love working with them. And, you know, sometimes Kaiser will pay well here in California, sometimes not. So, of course, it's not across the board, but what I encourage therapist to do is say okay I'm going to take insurance then before you even contact any panels say to yourself what are my boundaries I want to be paid x amount per session I want to be paid by x date and I'm willing to do x amount of paperwork and then try to find an insurance company that does that and if it doesn't that's okay Mm -hmm. you know I mean it's like I think sometimes we get this guilt factor and we think like if I don't take insurance I'm this horrible person but like the reality is you have to take care of yourself and your family and it doesn't mean you can't advocate for yourself. And the other part is like, you can negotiate with insurance companies. If you're the only provider in your city, which sounds like you guys, you know, like if there's not tons of private practice therapists, you could say to an insurance company, you have people in your network that live here. You don't have enough providers. Here's what I'm willing to charge you. And a lot of times they'll do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that there's groups here where I live. Santa Barbara has a huge mental health shortage and there's been multiple groups of clinicians that have gotten together that say like, you don't have any clinicians in your network here. Here's what we charge. Let us know, yeah. you know? So it depends. I mean, obviously if you're in New York city or something that might not be, yeah. the case, but <laughs> you're in a rural area that works a lot of the time. Yeah. Awesome. What, what question do you have about like program wise, kind of where you are, um, well, because Caitlin and I were talking about this, and she's like, well, what are your thoughts? And so, like, just going through your page and stuff, because I think um, Caitlin is very supportive. She always has been and probably always will be, but I also am a very systems person a little bit where yeah. I kind of have to see this 
this thing and it's I know that sometimes it can look like I need to like have an immediate benefit but part of me is like I don't even know what type of person I want to see or what population I want to work with and so like part of me is like do I start and I have 3,000 hours then to get for licensure like should I just go to an institution because that seems more systems like logical or do I ask Caitlin or other supports of people who value private practice to be my supervisor I just don't know where to go from there or that that's a good question you know and we talk a lot about this in a couple of the master's programs I teach in it's like I think there's huge benefit when you're in school when you're I know here in California you have to get a certain number of licensing hours when you're in school Mm -hmm. I think there's a huge benefit to to doing that in an institution like I'm certainly not anti-institution in any way and I think you know you learn so much from being on a team there's huge benefit on being on a treatment team and learning how to communicate with a treatment team because even if you're in private practice you end up doing that in your own kind of private practice way um so I recommend to people that when they're in school, and here in California, you, when you're in school, you have to be in an institution. You can't be in a private practice. I don't know how it is in Wisconsin, but here, that's how it has to be. And then when you're out of school, I tell people, like, you make the choice on what's best for you, you know? So here in California, you can work in your in a private practice on your first associate number. So, like, we license associates, and, and you get a certain number of numbers. So my understanding, and again, the BBS, like, here changes all the time, but... Um, and so that means you have to get your hours done in your first number, which lasts five years here. So you, most people do it. But um, I think at the point when you graduate, you can choose what's the best setting for you. And I like I kind of did it both ways when I first graduated. I worked in a treatment center, which was more of a bigger institution. And then I also worked in a private practice in the evening. And I think the benefit of working in an institution during the day and just slowly working in a practice a couple of hours a week starting out is that you get kind of the best of both worlds. You know, so I usually tell people like get the stability of a nine to five while you're collecting your hours and like ideally you're getting some health insurance and some things and then like build a private practice in the evenings or on the weekends, you know. Um, but I certainly also know people who just jumped right into private practice on graduation. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. And then niche, oh, you also asked yeah. the niche thing. That's a hard one and one that people ask me all the time. And I I always just think it's one of those like follow your joy kind of things like think about the clients you love seeing and then slowly start to ask yourself like what do they have in common you know Mm -hmm. it doesn't always happen overnight I don't think like I started out thinking I wanted to work with mostly severe and persistent mental illness and then eventually my practice was all specialized in working with teenage girls (laughs) totally different you know well not totally different populations but like you know like you kind of evolve you know, I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you feel yeah, like? Yeah, no, I totally, I did a ton of different internships. I got my, so uh, I got my hours in. It typically takes like two to five years to get your 3,000. I did mine in like a year and four months. Like I was trying everything. I was out there, but that's because I knew in order to open my private practice, I needed to complete those hours. So I just went straight for it. But that's also my personality. Mm-hmm. So, that's, <laughs> and that's not Liz's, no. you know what I mean? And that's totally cool. But I, 
I got yeah. the flavor of all different age ranges. I can work with ages four and up, but now I am able to hone in and specialize. Like I want to talk about trauma. So, right. We're, uh, that's a lot of my patients and anxiety yeah. and depression. Yeah. So it does evolve over time, but you do have to try different things. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think and, it's- try a lot of different things you know it's like you don't know until you kind of know and that's what I like about this prayer is like you can go quickly through it you could go not quickly through it you know and and I do I think there's some messed up parts of like the supervision mental mentorship piece oh there is but I think there's huge benefit in the fact that we really stress mentorship in our field and really stress getting advice from other people because yeah yeah, I had a ton of different super, and that was great for me. I got to learn about private practice. Had I not been at one of the um, private practices, I wouldn't even know cash pay existed because it didn't exist oh, okay. because no one taught me. So yeah. had I not had that experience, and then right. the different clinicians or supervisors, um, I just love learning what other people do and then taking it and yeah. making it my own. And so like that's the art. So the art and the science, oh, yeah. that's what I'm always thinking about. Um, and I'm more comfortable in the art of it. And and the organic and the raw and just sitting there and doing that but I obviously when I started internship that was like I had my I sat on my hands like oh yeah I was like, so scary remember <laughs> I felt like it was so like seeing my first client I remember thinking like they're gonna know <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, And that's what I think about our field, too, is that trying that, getting that experience and really leaning into, yep, that was awkward and that was horrifying. Like when I think about my first notes, (laughs) oh, my gosh, Caitlin, you know, all of that stuff. Um, Yeah. I mean, my notes now. Yeah. 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 Wait, I have to plug in this computer. I keep on like messing this up. That's okay. Okay. There we go. Uh, I don't know. I just think like because I've been blessed with this situation and having you as somebody who I can lean on and then now I think just the the age in which we have Instagram and all these things like right there's that like fear mentality and that might be excessive but like am I going to mess up because I'm actually kind of ahead of a curve a little bit but like not but like don't know and so I think that that's where I'm just at like so I want to pick this and go with the passion, but then there's this, and I've had this opportunity in that one, and so I don't know. I think that's, like, the most stressful part for me, and also, like, I think California and Wisconsin probably have different licensure requirements, of course, but things are changing all the time, and we've been so behind on processing those as a state. I don't know if California, because of the pandemic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's the same way. It's always slow. And I mean, so when I then, always like, eight months yes like so then what am I what would I do for eight months and like there's that fear of that and then but like I do have a skill set so can I get cash paid marketing myself some other way like and then you feel like you're jumping through loopholes I don't know so that's kind of where like I was want like feeling like oh how could I market myself without being the LPCIT or whatever right. that would be for you yeah I think it, the state of California is so slow too and I've seen people who work under a supervisor and then like during that eight months they just negotiate with their supervisor like you know maybe they don't get fully what they would get as a licensed person but they get part of the way there you know depending on when you take your test or not mm-hmm. um and then I think when it comes to niching down like yeah in the world of Instagram like you have to niche down if you're going to market online um you know Google doesn't know they just <laughs> there's keywords and you know so like certainly like putting something out there that's really niche is scary. Like I know for me, like my niche is 
therapists in private practice who want to build a practice. That's like actually not that big of a niche, you know? Um, but what I always tell people too, is like, just because you're niche down in one topic, doesn't actually mean that you end up only seeing those people. Like I historically have always seen teenagers for a long time. I just saw teens and then I niched down to teenage girls because that's who mostly wanted to come see me anyway. And I'd refer the like teenage boys to one of my colleagues. And then what I realized is like, I had maybe two thirds of my practice was teenage girls, but the other third was like their moms and their cousin who also wanted to see me. And then like some families and, you know, people end up seeing you as for who you are as a person too, you know? So I think just because your, your marketing is super niche doesn't actually mean that that translates to your practice being super niche. Does that make sense? And I love that you say that too. So my philosophy is just do good therapy. Right. And so when you do good therapy, you have a solid group of five people that you did good therapy with. I don't care if it's a teen, an adult, a kid, whatever. But then guess what? They're going to tell other people. So truthfully, from a like I okay, I have my website and I have like psychology today or whatever, but I have not had to send out mailers. I like, you know, the traditional marketing. People ask me about those all the time. I'm like, like, what? Yeah, I know. Um, I didn't have to do any of that, but I'm building my reputation and my brand. And so that's another thing that I think that there's more opportunity to do that now with Instagram, with these other modalities. And that now because mental health is sort of booming, this is the time to start your practice and the you don't have to go and like knock on doctors I was like what I ain't knocking on anybody's door you can come to my door because if you want like I'm going to provide good therapy and that is what I will always back myself on and then to me people will come so it doesn't matter who I treat as long as I've done a good job at it so that's kind of I mean certainly like I always will tell people like once you're more established your clients become your best referral source and oftentimes people will say like because I ta- teach tons of marketing strategies on my page. They'll be like, do I have to do this forever? And I'll tell people like, no, like real, I still am a big believer that like referrals are the best way to get clients. Like, and obviously I'm in, on Instagram. So people think like, oh my gosh, I have to build this huge Instagram following. But then they look at my private practice and they see that I don't have an Instagram for my private practice. And the thing is like, could I? Yes, obviously you know how to build a following. Like, but the reality is for me at the point that I'm at in my practice all these years in like the majority of my referrals come from like 10 people who I've worked with forever doctors who I know really well um fam- for me family therapists that I know really well that we've worked on tons and tons of cases together and we really trust each other the issue is that you have to put in the work to get those people Correct. so first you know you need people who are referring to you and then second you need people you need clients who are referring back to you as well and so getting that critical mass a lot of times i'll tell people like my rule of thumb is like let's say you want 20 clients a week okay and you are at five then until you get to 20 i want you to spend the other 15 hours a week building your practice once you get to 20 and you're in maintenance mode you might just be making clinical update phone calls sending out some gifts each year maybe going to lunch with a therapist once every couple weeks and like that might be maintenance mode but you're not in maintenance mode when you first open you know so it's yeah I agree with you in the sense that like it can be and then some people say to me you know what I don't love going out and meeting people and then I'll say okay then you need to build a following on Instagram or you need to build a following on TikTok if you don't want to go out and meet people and market yourself to other providers then like 
we need a different way. And online marketing is a great way to do that, you know, Mm -hmm. or paid ads if you want to invest the money in paying for Google ads, whatever. But I personally think the most sustainable way is to build referral sources because you don't have to maintain it. I mean, you do have to maintain it in the sense that you maintain relationships, but you're not investing in Google ads for $500 a month every month or, you know, posting on Instagram three times a day or whatever. So like in the shorter term, it's harder because you have to get out of your bubble and go do it. But in the longer term, it's just maintaining professional friendships, which most therapists have a pretty easy time doing anyway, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Absolutely. I got on my soapbox. I like time. it. I like it. <laughs> Have you seen anything as far as, I guess, so when I'm talking about the pandemic and mental health right now, I'm thinking about the pandemic kind of in different phases or waves. Oh. Yeah. So I would say, what do you feel like the current wave and things that are happening with it um, that you're feeling or kind of seeing in your practice? You mean in terms of clients yeah. or in terms yeah. of it's hard because I think also even in different parts of the country, like things are different. So here in Santa Barbara and Cal- I live close to LA, mm-hmm. um, we did not stop masking until recent, right? Like February. Yeah. So we had masked the entire pandemic mm-hmm. since February and <laughs> until February. And then also I personally had a baby in March of 2020. So my baby is the exact age of the pandemic. (laughs) Um, So I think here we've had such high rates of COVID that like it's, although we've had respite in some ways from it, it's kind of been continued, like life only very recently got back to normal, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and I think in general, people are pretty COVID conscious. So like we've had, and I also live next door to an elementary school. So like everyone's like, you know, a lot of, uh, there's just a lot of masks. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if it's felt like, I feel like there's different, I don't know if I'm answering your question, you but are. there's been different waves here, but yeah. in the, in the midst of it all, I think the whole time because of where I live, we've just been in the pandemic. Yeah, did it increase like your wait list or like who you had to refer out? Like, did you have more inquiries and people wanting to see you? Yeah, I mean, that's been a problem for me for for quite a while. And um, luckily I just tend to refer out. So if you treat teenagers in California, like you should hit me up because I definitely have referrals for you. Um, And yes, so the biggest thing for me that happened during COVID was I obviously have a consulting business for therapists. And so that wait list blew up, you know, everyone was really afraid of like, what are we, what are we going to do about our private practices? How do we pivot? What needs to happen? A lot of that kind of stuff. And then a lot of people wanting to go into private practice because they were working in hospitals or other institutions and they were really afraid to get COVID and they wanted to go virtual and all of that. So that side of my business obviously grew immensely and then in terms of my private practice because I'm half and half and I also am a mom during COVID um, I maintain a small practice and I have not taken on new clients in almost a year so I've always had a waiting list and like I think if you call my private practice voicemail at this point it just like lists other therapists because it's like I I can't take anyone Mm -hmm. Um, and so Every once in a while, I'll take a family friend or not a family friend, but, you know, like a friend of a friend if they really, really are asking. But um, mostly I've found that the majority of the therapists that I know who've been established for a while are pretty full, Mm -hmm. you know, and and people just starting out, it takes a lot of time. And I think 
that's like been one of the things that I always worry about for newer therapists that, that became therapists during COVID is there was such a huge surge of mental health need that I sometimes worry that newer therapists didn't necessarily have to learn how to market themselves. And so I always kind of warn newer therapists, like make sure that even though you're becoming a therapist during COVID and your practice fills really quickly, that you know how to fill it in a non-crisis time. Right. Um, Cause that's important. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, cool. So, well, thank you so much for meeting with us. Uh, I hope this is like seriously part one of like 52 other episodes. (laughs) I'm you guys. We love it. Maybe you come live on my uh, Instagram. That'd be fun. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, We appreciate it. And everybody that kind of tuned or that is going to tune in. Yeah.